0: Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is the Honorable Leonard Edwards, whose roots with the CASA movement run very deep. Um, He served as a Superior Court Judge in Santa Clara County, California for more than 20 years, and has written and lectured about judicial best practices um, and served as judge in residence at the Center for Families, Children, and the Courts, a division of the Judicial Council of California. Um, And although you're now retired from the bench, um, you continue to work as an educator and consultant, and I'm just really grateful for you taking the time to talk with me today and share just a little bit of your um, vast experience with our listeners. So, um, And especially at this moment, I'm really excited to have a little bit of your time because we are experiencing a true uh, capacity crisis in the Texas child welfare system right now where we're seeing just an unprecedented number of kids um, sleeping in CPS offices, which is very concerning um, to all of us uh, in the state. So we'll talk a little bit more about that and what child advocates can do um, in response to this crisis in a moment. But before I get ahead of myself, I'd love to invite you to share a little bit about your background um, and maybe talk a little bit about what's kept you going in this work. you know, it's inspiring to speak with someone who's been so dedicated for so long, and I'd love to just hear if what sustains you um, and keeps you going in this work, Judge Edwards.
1: It's a pleasure to meet you and to talk with you. <clears throat> I was born with it, <clears throat> and I can't, I can't take credit for it. It's just I have a, a lot of energy, and I've always worked for the underdogs. I was a, um, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I was I taught in a foreign country, Malaysia. I was a public defender. I was a civil rights worker. Um, and when I got to the superior court, there was only one assignment I wanted, and that was in the juvenile court. And unlike some states in California, judges can serve in many different roles in the superior court: probate, civil, criminal, and I, a family. And I said, uh, "Just send me to juvenile court." And there was a great sigh of relief because nobody else wanted to go. Wow! Well, that was back in 1980. I mean, it's a long time ago. So, um, so I stayed out there, and I was on the bench for 26 years. And when I retired, I I uh, have flunked retirement. <laughs> I'm very involved in all kinds of. Issues and all kinds of activities, which are pretty much always focused on improving outcomes for children and families, and I'm—it's a calling for me, and I can't slow down. And um, I very very happy with what my life has brought. I'm a very very uh, satisfied person because I've—I believe I've started a lot of organizations. I started our our what we call our Child Advocate or CASA program. I started our Domestic Violence Council. I started the Juvenile Court Judges of California. And our judges get together and we comment on legislation and we meet and we talk all the time. And some of these took off pretty slowly, but the most successful has been our CASA program, which we call our Child Advocates of Silicon Valley. And I... uh, my my, uh, my first wife died of cancer, and then I, I remarried, and she was a My Wow. Goodness, and all. <laughs> I talked about the right thing to say when I started dating her. I said, Well, that solves about 90% of all the problems I have.
0: Wow. Now. Well, thank you so much again, just for your generosity of time. Clearly, you carry so much. Expertise in working with um, children and families, and I'm just thrilled to benefit from that even just a little bit. So I had reached out to you, as you know, after reading a really compelling, compelling article that you um, published a few months back in the National Association of Counsel for children's uh, Law Journal. And this piece spoke to the urgency of placing children with their relatives, and as we're seeing, just so many kids sleeping in CPS offices right now, you know. I, I want to ensure that CASA advocates are empowered to do everything they can to connect with relatives who can be supports and potential placements for these kids. So can you talk a little bit about why placing children with their family networks um, needs to be such a huge priority?
1: I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2008, Congress passed the Fostering Connections Act. And in that act, it changed 100 years of federal policy and started favoring relatives as a placement. For 100 years, the United States Congress thought that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and therefore relatives must be no good if the parents were having problems. Well, they discovered that while we had 400,000 kids in care privately, more than two and a half million children were living with relatives and they weren't having problems, just the normal problems that families have. And so this was landmark legislation. And it said, you've got to, you've got to notice these relatives and bring them in. And the legislation said, use family finding, which is a wonderful technique developed by Kevin Campbell. It's a it's a computer-based search engine, and they, they can find 100 relatives in a pretty short time. And it also said, why don't you try family group conferencing, which is a best practice that was developed in New Zealand by the Maoris, which, frankly, is an indigenous people's response to family problems, and that is to bring the family together and let them problem solve. Well, we we in California picked up and ran with that. I brought the New Zealanders over here for a a conference, which I started 30 years ago. Uh, We call it Beyond the Bench. They stole the show. They absolutely stole the show. And now we have statutes which talk about family team meetings, getting the family together almost immediately when the child has to be removed. Well, more recently, I started reading. Studies about children placed with relatives versus children placed in foster care or congregate care. Well, Congre- uh, Congress has already figured out that congregate care is the worst. The results for kids aging out of congregate care are terrible, just terrible. But these studies went much further. They included foster care. By the way, in, in legal terms, neither foster care nor congregate care. Is considered a permanent plan. And what does that mean? It means that the state is not going to go away. We have to pay these people to care for these kids. And what these studies did these studies are all footnoted in the article you mentioned, which is online. It's only four or five pages long. You can download it for free. These studies had hundreds of thousands of children that they watched over decades. And they concluded that the results for these kids who were placed in congregate care and in foster care were much worse than the, the results of children placed with relatives. And the, the, the problems that they identified were problems like health and longevity. And I never suspected that. I just knew they might have a rough time with people they didn't know, stranger care. But it's much more than that, and so instead of just saying relative care, and I've got about four articles on relative care in which I say it's 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 a preference, it went much further than that. It it's urgency, and that's why I put that term in there. Is that some of the some of the uh, the sociologists who ran these studies said, if you're going to move a child, place them with relatives or else you're going to get bad results. So I'm on a crusade. And I've been talking to people all over the country, trying to find out who, which social service agency is doing a good job with relative preference. Well, the best, the first one was uh, Allegheny County in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They, uh, they had a model program and they were getting a uh, by the way, the na- the nation has 32 percent of children removed from home are with relatives. Foster care is about 48. Well, Allegheny County did it, but then my my good colleague, who was the presiding judge in Los Angeles, his name is Mike Nash. He decided he was going to light a fire in Los Angeles, and he got a couple of their 19 districts to try an experiment. Doing family finding upfront. And after a three to four years, they were up to 85%. Think about that. The nation is 32%. And, and these places in Los Angeles is, were over 80%. And then they expanded it to half of Los Angeles, which is probably about 6 million people. And all of the other districts had similar results. And so finally, even though the pandemic has put people in financial straits, they decided to go all the way. So LA right now is in the process of having their entire child welfare system use a protocol, which I carefully define in two of the articles that are online about how they do that, how they identify parents and relatives immediately. Do the background checks, do the the housing checks, and they place the kid within 24 hours to 48 hours. They are they are doing it the right way. Sometimes, sometimes oh in about 18% of those cases, they place with the non-custodial parent. And that's usually a father. And suddenly this child or children have a, a, a relationship that they can develop there. The paternal side of the family, it's the same for if it were vice versa, gets much more involved. And remember, I, you and I talked before we started this about the paucity of family time, of visitation, because it's such a challenge for agencies to transport and supervise. Well, both. I've talked to Allegheny County several times. I've talked to Los Angeles a bunch of times. I've gone down there and watched it. Visitation is dramatically increased and it's not visitation in a in a social worker office. It's visitation in a family home. Well, this is just nothing but good for the kid. And. I mean, we hope that the kid will be reunited with the parents, the services will be effective, and the parents will shape up in one way or another. But if not, we've got, we've got a child who knows what his family is, who's, who's grounded in, in, as part of a family. And I just can't tell you how important that is, and any psychologist will tell you that, that this is a great result for a child given a tough situation. A tough situation because the child's been abused or neglected and the social service agencies had to come in to provide a safe home for him. Now, you mentioned to me earlier that a lot of kids are in, uh, uh, in waiting rooms on mattresses on the floor and things like that. And that happens. That happens in all the jurisdictions around the country um, when you get overwhelmed. You know, we, we were also overwhelmed by the opioid crisis. We had babies in hospitals. We were, last year, the fiscal year ending September of 2020, last year, there were 87,000 opioid overdose deaths. Now, we have the pandemic deaths, and that's a larger number. But these opioid crises, you lose a parent. And suddenly you're you're in the dependency system or you're trying to scramble to get things together. So relatives are the answer and we know how to do it. So I am optimistic that if we can get states to really bear down on this and do this, that we will have much better results for our most vulnerable children.
0: I love what you're saying about the importance of working with, family networks right off the bat when a child comes into care Um, at texas casa we have one of our biggest projects is called collaborative family engagement where we're um training folks around the state to uh you know kind of change the way that they uh facilitate family meetings so that they're more family centered and and really um give empower the family to to come up with um what's going to work for them for addressing the the needs um, and the safety concerns. Um, and I, I were passionate advocates of connection and I would love to hear if you have thoughts, you have so much experience with CASA in your work, um, your thoughts on how CASA can really like promote greater connectedness for kids in care.
1: Well, you know, I'm a, I believe in CASA. I believe it's the most important volunteer organization in the country, although there are many other good ones. But uh, CASA volunteers work with our community's most vulnerable children, and that makes it even more important. But I've been talking about families ever since I started. I, I kept thinking, you know, Congress thought that foster care and adoption was the answer. And the first Legislation in 1980 and then in 1997, it was all about saving kids from bad families. Well, the Family First Services Prevention Act has just now turned that around. And these two legislative initiatives, the Fostering Connections and the Family First legislation, have decided that, you know, maybe we ought to stick with families. And I people advocates like me around the country breathe a sigh of relief that's that's what works these kids have a family they want to belong and you can't belong in a foster home you can't not to the extent that you can with a family and so strengthening families is for me what it's all about well how do you do that well it's there's a skill set there are things you do <clears throat> first of all If there's a crisis, and if you're going to remove a child, that is a crisis. Let's just accept that right off the board. It's going to be traumatic for the child, no matter what, and it's it's an, an event that won't be in the newspaper. This is what we call a low visibility event that's much bigger and more traumatic than a drunk driving case or other misdemeanors. So that's part one. Well, what are you going to do? You are going to contact the family immediately. You're not going to wait for 30 days. That's what the federal statute says. You have 30 days to do this. You're going to call them immediately because if you wait 30 days, the relative is going to say, well, is he okay? Oh, yeah, he's in a foster home. That's fine. I'll visit him. No, we don't want that. We want this is an emergency and you as a relative need to show up and work with other relatives to come up with a family plan. And that's what they're doing in LA. That's what they're doing in Omaha, Nebraska. In Pennsylvania, they have county by county. They add three new counties a year. They're doing this. This is not something just with a couple of places. This is a best practice, which is growing. I wish, I wish it would grow faster, but it's growing in at least five states I can think of. Okay, that's... That's one. So the techniques, we call them family team meetings in California. And you can call them anything you want, but you need a skill set for that. You need a protocol. You need to say, how am I going to get a hold of these people? And how am I going to get them together to talk about their child? This is your child. This is this family's child. This family needs to come together to figure out what to do. And even if you have people who say, "Well, I can't possibly take the child," you come to the meeting. You can help somehow. We can't. We don't know how you can help, but we guarantee you'll be able to help somehow because this family's got to come together around this child. And that's that. To me, is the best response we can hope for in our in our community. I mean, I love social workers. I love the people in the community who are professionals in dealing with kids but they should turn their energies around to making the family the place where problems are going to be solved,
0: and then they can disappear. I'm with you 100%. Um, I want to be sensitive to our time and go ahead and wrap up. But um, Judge Edwards, thank you again so much just for um, joining us and um, to everyone for tuning in. Thanks for listening to CASA on the go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas CASA.